ask you once again to turn with me to the 14th chapter of the Gospel according to John, John 14. And please follow with me as I read verse 15 to verse 17. Our Lord Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. This text that I read in your hearing this morning presents us with a major transition in the Gospel of John. I might say a major theological transition in the book of John. Theological meaning having to do with God and the nature of God. Because up to this point, the focus of John's gospel has been upon Jesus and the Father. The Father who sent the Son into the world. The Father whose works and words the Son has been performing. But now we find a third person is brought into the picture. From this time forward in John's Gospel, the Holy Spirit takes center stage along with the Father and Son. This is particularly true in the rest of the feral discourse, as we call it, in chapter 14, 15, and 16. But in this Gospel, apart from just a couple of references to the Spirit in conjunction with the baptism of Jesus by John, or at least he being told that whoever you see the Spirit... Um, upon that's the one whom you were called to bear witness to and John's assertion that this one who comes will baptize in the Holy Spirit and maybe a, a reference to the Spirit perhaps in yeah in the new birth discourse with Nicodemus where Jesus says if, unless, you're, uh, unless you're born of the Spirit and of water you will not see the kingdom of heaven um, and maybe the work reference to the spirit to the woman at the well that we must uh, those who worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth you don't really have undisputable references to the Holy Spirit in the gospel of John you do have one that's sort of a major one that needs to be read and understood if we can understand this passage right and that's the one that's found in John chapter 7 verse 36 when Jesus was at the feast of tabernacles and on the great day of the feast he rose and he spoke out with a loud voice and said all who thirst let him come to me and he who comes to me out of his belly will flow rivers of living water and then we're told by John this is John's comment upon our Lord's words the gospel writers comment upon our Lord's words Uh, John says this he spoke of the spirit whom those who believed on him were to receive for as yet the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so the Spirit would come, according to that passage, when Jesus was glorified. In a real sense, the Spirit is can be understood as being given as the Spirit of the glorified Christ, the Spirit of the risen Christ. But now that Jesus is declared in the upper room discourse that the hour has come, that the Son of Man will be glorified. The Son of Man will be glorified in His death, resurrection, and ascension uh, to the Father. 
Now our Lord begins to speak much of the soon to be realized gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Spirit that would be given consequent upon the glorification of the Son of God. And we have major statements about the Spirit that's found in this passage. Verse 17, as I read, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and and will be in you. Down in verse 26 of chapter 14, uh, we read, that the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And then in chapter 15, in verse 26, it says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. And then in chapter 16, we have a large concentration of statements about the Spirit, beginning at verse 13, where Jesus says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. Again, Jesus has said of himself, what he says, he says, upon the authority of the Father. So the Spirit will speak upon the authority of the Father. He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. And therefore I said to you, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. One other passage I didn't read. Uh, Jesus says, I tell you the truth in verse 7 of chapter 16. It is to your advantage I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And so Jesus is speaking much about the coming of the Holy Spirit, about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, where the Spirit comes from, what the Spirit has come to do. And it seems to me, when you really think about this, you have chapter upon chapter of chapters, uh, upon chapter of the Father and the Son being the focus of the movement of John's Gospel, and now the Spirit comes into the picture. It's really in this way that the doctrine of the Trinity is revealed to us. How is this Trinity revealed? Well, it's revealed in the act of God, sending His Son into the world, sending His Spirit into the world, as we see in Jesus, and we see as in the giving of the Spirit, the mighty works of God in the salvation of the world. Well, again, Scripture anticipates this in the Old Testament. I don't think you really say that we'll come up with the doctrine of the Trinity just in the Old Testament alone. No, we get the doctrine of the Trinity because the Old Testament anticipates this salvation that would come when Messiah comes and when the Spirit is given. The Old Testament speaks of the coming of Jesus into the world. It speaks of the Spirit being poured out on all flesh. And so it anticipates what God would do and what God would do in the sending of the Son and the Spirit. But it was when the Son comes and the Spirit comes we see that these are manifestations of God. We see that these are no less personages, but incarnate deity, and the deity of the Spirit coming to indwell the hearts of God's people. We see in the New Testament the doctrine of the Trinity assumed. Again, it doesn't uh, actually 
uh, assert anywhere that God is a Trinity in three persons. It's it's seen in the in the work of the Spirit and the, and of the Son, but yet it's assumed, and so you see threeness everywhere in the New Testament. I think I mentioned that to you a couple of weeks back. Now this first reference in the final discourse or the farewell discourse of Jesus uh, mentions the spirit of truth. And he's introduced in terms of what Jesus calls the helper. The Greek word for that is paraclete. It's a word that's a form of the word that encouragement or exhortation comes from. It actually means uh, being called to the side of someone. Um, oftentimes it's used in the law courts in the ancient world where someone who was your most influential friend, if ever you got in trouble with Roman authorities, you would need a paraclete. Today we would say, you get a lawyer. Before I talk to the police, I need a lawyer. I need someone that can be my voice or be my one who helps me navigate uh, the law courts. Well, so it was in the ancient world. You would find your most influential friend to come alongside and to give you counsel and aid and finances and influence and whatever else that you would need. Well, God gives another paraclete. And the phrase another paraclete seems to indicate that it's another one of the same nature as the paraclete you already have. That is Jesus. Jesus is the paraclete who is, has been with these disciples throughout three and a half years. He's been their influential helper and encourager, the one who's been at their side, who has defended them and taught them and encouraged them and led them. And now he says, I will go away. And where I'm going, you cannot come. I will go and prepare a place for you in the Father's presence through my death and resurrection. But I will not be with you personally, but I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Now as we look to understand these words that Jesus gives of this other helper who will come, this other paraclete who will come, we need to take give attention to uh, three things. At least I'm going to suggest three things. And the three things I'm going to present to you are in the opposite order of the words we find in the text. So we're going to go from the end back to the beginning. And the first thing I'm going to look at with you in the words of verse 17 is the group to whom these words are spoken. There's a group. This will be found here. We need to understand this group. This group of, of men, this group of people to whom Jesus speaks these words. And then secondly, having looked at the group, we're going to go back to the words of verse um, um, 15, I believe, where we find the gift, the gift that is mentioned. I'm sorry, verse 16, where Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another comforter. There's a giving of the comforter. There's the gift of the comforter or of the Holy Spirit. And then in the last place, we're going to look at the graces associated with the giving of the Holy Spirit. That's in verse 15. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. So first we've got to look at the group, then we've got to look at the gift, and then we've got to look at the grace associated with the Holy Spirit. If we start in the other direction, I think we're going to come, with a, uh, come, come away with a false understanding 
Um, because in a real sense, we might think, well, unless we love Jesus, obey Jesus, no hope for me ever getting the Spirit of God. Well, that's really, you have to understand the group that these words are being spoken to, to understand why Jesus speaks the way that he does. But nonetheless, there clearly is a relationship between the Spirit of God as a gift, inhabiting the people of God, and these graces that Jesus speaks of. But let's begin with the group that hears these words. These are they who have believed in Jesus prior to the Spirit being given at Pentecost. Pentecost is the giving of the Spirit in history. That's what ultimately the Old Testament is looking forward to and expecting when it says, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh in Job chapter 2. I'm sorry, Joel chapter 2 in the latter days. And of course you read in chapter 2 of the book of Acts that Peter rises, having the Spirit having fallen upon the 120 in the upper room, the disciples being given the ability to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance, as they're declaring in these tongues the mighty works of God in the languages of the people, and their people understand what they're saying, and you're thinking maybe they're drunk, we just don't understand what's going on here. And uh, Peter rises, and Peter says what? He says, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And what was the prophet Joel talking about? The prophet Joel was talking about the new covenant giving of the Spirit. The Spirit being given in history. Upon the work of the Messiah, the Spirit would be poured out upon all flesh. Pentecost is that giving of the Spirit. The Spirit that's given in fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. Now Jesus speaks these words anticipating that event of the giving of the Spirit, not to a group of unbelievers, not to a group of people yet to be evangelized, but he speaks it to a group of disciples who has already believed before the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost. And so they're in kind of a situation no one else was ever in before and no one else will ever be again. Everybody was either a believer under the Old Covenant or a believer under the new covenant, these are people that were believers in both. They experienced the transition from old covenant to new covenant. And so these words need to be understood as spoken to a unique group of disciples. To them alone, it could be said, you know him, for he dwells with you and shall be in you. There's a present manifestation of the Spirit in your life. He dwells with you. There's a future manifestation of the Spirit yet to be in your life. He shall be in you. Now I know there's some manuscripts of the Gospel of John that actually say he, he um, is with you and um, I'm sorry that you know him and let me get the words right um, that he dwells with you and is in you. There's a present tense in some of the manuscripts. Um, but these are believers alone who live at the point of transition. They alone believe in anticipation of the fulfillment of the promises, and they believe after the realization of the fulfillment of the promises. And so I think it's to them alone that could be said, you know him. He dwells with you, and he shall be in you. Because the point of the matter is, Old Testament saints were not without the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwelt with the Old Testament people of God. 
God dwelt with Israel. His presence was made known. His presence was manifested. It's pictured in the presence of God in the tabernacle. And later on in the temple. Where God dwelt. God dwelt visibly in a cloud. They came and rested upon the tabernacle and later on in the temple. And God said, I will walk among them. Now that's not true with unbelieving Israelites. It's true with the believing Israelites. God may have dwelt in the sanctuary, but again the whole picture of the sanctuary is that people cannot approach God. Only the high priest once a year could go into the Holy of Holies and only the priests could serve in the holy place and all the people are outside in the courtyard. They could come and bring their sacrifices. But it's only when they were believing people was it true that the Spirit of God dwelt with them. Think of Moses. Moses was a man who had the Spirit of God. Joshua, his successor, was a man who was said in the Old Testament to have be, be filled with the Spirit of God. Remember when um, Moses in the book of Numbers was overworked with all of the responsibilities that he had, that the God uh, took those 70 men who were the leaders of the nation and put the spirit that was upon Moses upon those 70 men. And they began to prophesy. And then you have those two guys, Eldad and Medad, who were prophesying in their tents. And you have that incident where the people said, Stop them! Stop them! They shouldn't be prophesying in their tents. And Moses' response was, Oh, that all of God's people would have His Spirit. All of God's people would prophesy. Of course, that's what Joel 2 is talking about. It ultimately happens when Pentecost arrives. But the point is, in David, in the prophets, and in the old covenant believing people of God, they had the Holy Spirit by way of anticipation. Just as they had forgiveness by way of anticipation of the cross. They had the Holy Spirit by way of anticipation of what God would do in history when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. The blessings not only come to those that live after Pentecost. The blessings of the new covenant came to those that believe prior to Pentecost. Even under the old covenant. And so the Old Testament saints enjoyed the illuminating, sanctifying, liberating, grace producing influences of the Holy Spirit. And the way that Old Testament saints could enjoy such blessings. Now they didn't have them as the spirit of the risen Christ. They didn't have him as the spirit of the way uh, uh, of uh, the spirit of the glorified Christ, of the spirit that revealed Christ to them, the way New Testament saints do, because we possess the fullness of the revelation of God in the gospel. Yet Jesus says He dwells with you. That could mean He dwells with you because He dwells in me and I'm with you. But the point of it is. God is present with His believing people. God is present to teach them. God is present to lead them. God is present to correct them. God is present to guide them. All the things we enjoy as new covenant believers. Don't think the old covenant people of God were brought up short in those things? No. Read the Psalms. Clearly they had the fullness of a diverse and wondrous religious experience in the knowledge of the God of Israel because he was with them. 
The New Testament saints enjoy the presence of God in the light of the gospel. So Jesus could say to John the Baptist, he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than all the prophets that have gone before. Why? Because we have the reality of religious experience and experiential relationship and communion and fellowship with the God of, the, of heaven and earth in the light of the fullness of his revelation in the gospel of the Lord Jesus. In the fullness of the revelation of his triune identity that he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He dwells with them and will be in them I don't know what the precise difference is between the two. The point is, God's there. God's there. Whether it's in the person of Jesus, the power of the indwelling spirit seems to have done work in them. And yet, he will yet be in them in some new, new way that Jesus speaks of. And so we have to keep that in mind when we read these passages about the Spirit. There's something distinct about this group of people moving from old to new covenant. So don't take everything that's said there without factoring that in. Especially the matter that uh, it would seem that loving Christ and obeying Christ is preliminary in some fashion. Uh, we'll, We'll address that when we get there. But this is the group that these words are spoken to. Now, we want to move on to the gift. Jesus speaks of the Father giving the disciples another helper. Again, it's the act of the Father, the Father's giving, that our Lord highlights. He calls the Spirit the Spirit of Truth. The Spirit of Truth that comes from the God of Truth is the gift that God gives to His people Chapter 15, he's 16, he's going to say, he leads you, He'll lead you into all the truth. He's the one whom the Father sends in the name of the Son in 1426. And yet he's also the one whom the Son sends, sends from the Father and proceeds from the Father. And this is interesting. You have Jesus praying the Father, send the Spirit to my people, or your people. And then Jesus says, I'll send the Spirit who proceeds from the Father. So he seems to be sent from both Father and Son. The Father sends the Spirit, the Son sends the Spirit. Acts chapter 2, it says, This Jesus whom you crucified, God is exalted, made him Lord in Christ, and being exalted at the right hand of God, he's poured out this which you see and hear. There it seems it says Jesus is the one that pours forth the Spirit. Well, who gives the Spirit? Uh, both the Father and Son. That's why the Western Church said the Spirit proceeds from both Father and Son. The Eastern Church said no, the Spirit just proceeds from the Father. It's an old controversy, can't get into the details of it, but hey, we're, the West, we're Western Christians, so we're on the right side of this point. But the Spirit comes from both the Father and Son. It's a gift of the Father and the Son. Again, the point is that the Father and Son and their operations are together, that they're unified in their workings. It's not that the, that the Son must persuade the Father, send them the Spirit. 
Look to look at my wounds, look at my blood. And he looks to persuade them to be gracious. No, the Father will be gracious. The Father loves the people whom he sent the Son to redeem. And the Father, Son, and Spirit are on, on, on the same side in this, and the same um, functions to operate unitedly for the welfare and the good of the people to whom the Spirit of God is given. But now, what is it that the Father and Son send as a gift? Well, Jesus calls it a paraclete. Again, the one who comes alongside to help. Again, the Old Testament tells us God is the helper of His people, right? God is my refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Psalm 46 and verse 1 declares. It's the word Ezer. Remember in the book of Samuel, the Ebenezer, the Ebenezer. Here I raise my Ebenezer, we sing in the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. What's an Ebenezer or an Ebenezer? Well, it's the stone of help. Because I think it was Samuel that says, Thus far the Lord has helped me. God is the helper of his people. Jesus has come from the Father to be the helper of his people, to save his people from their sins, to be their prophet, to teach them, to be the priest who dies for them. He offers himself a sacrifice for them, intercedes for them at the Father's right hand. He comes to help them as a king who brings them to submit to him and to love him and to rule over them. And the Spirit takes up the same work to help the people of God. Did you know, you know the name Nikki Cruz? Some of you older Christians know the name of Nikki Cruz. If you remember the book, The Sword and the Switchblade, that David Wilkerson, who uh, set up a ministry in New York, a teen challenge that dealt with drug addicts, and a lot of us saw the movie that Pat Boone starred in. Well, Nikki Cruz was like his first convert. And Nikki Cruz uh, became a Christian minister. And you know, Nikki Cruz wrote a book on the subject of the Trinity. Believe it or not, Nikki Cruz. You think you have to be a great theologian to write a book on the Trinity. Well, Nikki Cruz wrote a book on the Trinity. You know what the book was called? He took his uh, point of reference from that old movie, The Magnificent Seven, and he called his book The Magnificent Three. And you might think that's a pretty, pretty uh, you know, cheeky or commercial to call your book The Magnificent Three. But his whole point is we need the Magnificent Three. We need the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to save us. Our, our need is so great it will require nothing less. It's the working of the triune God. It's not just we need Jesus to save us, although certainly we need Jesus to save us. We need the work of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the saving God. And we need to understand that salvation is the work of the triune God. We don't just discuss the Trinity on Trinity Sunday or sometime when... uh, you know, some study in theology takes place. He governs every aspect of the work of Christ and the work of the Spirit. The triune God is at work. 
Every aspect of Bible salvation, every aspect of Christian experience is thoroughly, fully Trinitarian through and through. The Spirit now comes to take up that same work the Father and Son are engaged in, being one with them in this work, taking up residence in the lives of believers to help them, to help them in all of their troubles, to counsel them, to instruct them, to direct them, to lead them, to illuminate them, to correct them, to give them wisdom, to work in them, to will and to work for God's good pleasure. They now possess a paraclete at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is in heaven for us. John in the book of 1st John calls him that when he says we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. It's the same word. We have a paraclete with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have a helper at the right hand of the majesty on high. And he intercedes for us. But you know what? We also have a helper in our hearts within our own bodies we are made to be temples of the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit comes to take residence in our hearts to dwell in us he intercedes for us as well we're told in Romans chapter 8 he teaches he succors he helps he brings the fullness of the blessings of the salvation of the triune God into full fruition in our life and experience as the people of the living God. That's the gift. Blessed be God. We are possessors of the gift of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that that something to get excited about as a Christian? I mean, in the midst of the humdrumness of life, to realize the presence of God resides in us in our hours of weakness and need to realize the presence of God resides in us. You say, I don't feel Him residing in me. Again, we walk by faith, folks, not by sight. By faith we believe in the Holy Spirit. We don't need to speak in tongues. We don't need some miraculous manifestation. We have the promise of the presence of the paraclete who comes to indwell us. So the presence of God is for us at the right hand of God. The presence of God is in us by the Spirit bringing the presence of God near. This is a gift that cannot be bought. This is a gift that does need to be wrested from an unwilling God to give it to us. But it is the working of the free spirit of God who blows where he wills and takes residence to help in the heart of believers in his free grace. That doesn't mean the spirit is capricious in his ways. And therefore the text not only speaks of this group to whom the promises are made, Old Testament saints, soon to be New Testament saints, not only of the gift nature of the promise, but also something of the graces that precede, or the graces that at least are associated with and pave the way for the fulfillment of the promise to the people of God. 
Now the first thing I would say to you is that the Spirit is given in answers to prayer. The Spirit of God is given to the people of God in answers to prayer. But now, in this context, it's not our prayers, it's Jesus' prayers. Jesus says, I will pray the Father, and He will give you another comforter. So the Spirit comes as a result of the request that Jesus makes of His Father. But it's an interesting thing that Jesus, is in, in His instruction to His people about prayer, in the 11th chapter of Luke's Gospel, He says to them, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father give what? The Holy Spirit. To whom? To those who ask. The Jesus who asks tells us to ask. And you find that reality really throughout. Um, You think in the second Psalm, it says, ask of me. The Father says to the Son, ask of me. I'll give you the nations for your inheritance, the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. And then in the New Covenant, Jesus says, Ask, and you shall receive. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, it shall be opened to you. In the context in which he's speaking about the kingdom coming into the world. In the context in which we're to pray, Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As we pray for the coming of the kingdom, we have to realize that the kingdom does come in answer to prayer, and the Spirit is given in answer to prayer. The prayer of Christ, yes, as our heavenly high priest who intercedes for us, but also the prayers of the people of God. You go into the book of Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 36, God gives all manner of promises to his new covenant people. I'm going to bring you back to the land. I'm going to sprinkle clean water upon you. I'm going to make you clean. I'm going to do this. 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 And among them is I will put my spirit in you that you might walk in my ways and do my commands. And then in the end of the whole thing, when all the while God's saying, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will do this and that and the next. At the end of it, it says, and for this, I will be inquired of by the house of Israel. I don't understand divine sovereignty and human responsibility any more than you do. I just know that the sovereign God does what he does in answer to the prayers of his people. I know that prayer is vital in the equation of the things that God does in the world. That's why he calls us to be a praying people. That's why his tabernacle where he dwells is said to be a house of prayer for the nations. Prayer is a factor in all that God does in the world. And prayer is a factor in the presence and ministry of the Spirit. And that's why in the epistles, Paul's always praying for what? He says, I bow my knee to the Father, and He would grant you the Spirit. Wait a minute, they have the Spirit. He said that already in Ephesians 1, that you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And yet in the next paragraph, he's praying that He would give you the Spirit as the Spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him. Again, we're talking about the Spirit. We're talking about the infinite God coming to dwell in us. And none of us have all of the Spirit. We all have measures of the Spirit. And we all need the Spirit's grace and presence. And prayer is central again to the Spirit's working. The maintenance of a lively relationship to God through the Spirit. That we don't grieve the Spirit. We don't quench the Spirit. Prayer is central to the whole work of the Spirit of God in us. And so Jesus prays that the Spirit would be given as we are to pray for the Holy Spirit. 
But not only does prayer obtain the Spirit, but the Lord also tells this group of disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will pray the Father. So prior to the prayers of the Son, there's also the love and obedience of the disciples. Now granted, these have been disciples for three and a half years. It doesn't mean that the Spirit is only given to the most loving and obeying of the people of God, but that the Father is unwilling to give the Spirit until He's won over by our love and obedience. It's not that we have to go into a place and fast and pray and uh, do all sorts of things in order to get the Spirit of God. God gives His Spirit freely and willingly. And yet Jesus says, if you love me. But again, we're dealing here, I've told you this before, New Testament uses these conditional phrases that oftentimes are translated, if this, then that. But often these conditional phrases are not iffy. It's not a question, do you love me or not love me? And Jesus said to Peter, do you love me? Peter responds, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. And so this if you love me is really more like a since you love me. It's more like since you love me. Since you've loved me and you've stayed with me, you will keep my commandments. See, love is expressed in obedience. Love is not expressed so much in the fact, well, we love Jesus so much, we just want him to stay, we don't want him to leave, and we fixate our minds upon what we want from him. We fix our minds on what he wants from us. See, these are people who could have well gotten all involved in what we need and want from Jesus rather than what Jesus wants from us. Because Jesus is leaving and they want him to stay. Jesus says, it's better for you that I go. You would not receive the Spirit. You've got to be so concerned about loving me and having more of a concern for my glory in the world, more of a concern that I would go to the Father through the death of the cross and I will bring all nations to myself than you are for your own comforts as a believer. More concerned with obedience to me than what you get from this relationship. Love means we commit ourselves to Him. We want His good to be furthered in the world. And His good is furthered in the world by our abiding in Him and loving Him and obeying Him and keeping His ways and doing His will. See, in the very act of faith, there's a love that's sparked in our hearts because we behold the God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. That's an amazing thing. We behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You think you see the glory of God and you'd be overwhelmed. Well, you are overwhelmed, but you're also fascinated by that glory. You love that glory. You love that Christ is revealed in the gospel. And you see with Paul when Jesus showed him his glory from heaven on the road to Damascus. What was his words? Lord, what will you have me to do? That's the response of the heart of someone who knows Jesus, believes in Jesus, loves Jesus. What will you have me to do? How can I honor you? How can I obey you? You see what the gospel has done is that it's brought us to God through Jesus 
that we might participate in the life of God through the power of a new birth. A new birth that the Spirit Himself has produced so that the Spirit, as it were, as it were cleanses our hearts by faith, makes us fit vessels of His presence. Again, a people that are forgiven, a people that are cleansed, are a people that are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. That we might know Him and His sanctifying, illuminating, joy-producing influences within our soul. Again, it's not ultimately our prayers or our faith or our love, our obedience that gets the Spirit to be given to us, but it's the free and sovereign grace of God that affects new birth through the Spirit and cleanses our hearts by the atoning blood of Jesus, making us, again, the fit vessels for the Spirit's indwelling. But the point is, these things are related. Prayer, love, obedience, faith. So the Spirit works in conjunction with these things. It's prayer, love, obedience, and faith that the Spirit produces yes. But having produced it, He also blesses it. So we don't say, look at me, I believe, look at me, I obey, look at me, I love, look at me, I pray. That's all the work of the Spirit in us, but yet, having produced it, He blesses it. He blesses it. With the increasing measures of His presence, and His love, and His light. I think that's what Jesus is telling us. What he's telling his disciples. Love, obedience, faith. It's all in conjunction with the working of the Spirit of God. And you can't sever these things. You can't separate them. The Spirit's workings and it's also the Spirit's blessings that he himself blesses. I was just saying in conclusion, I know that this, this is tough territory that we're getting into when we talk of the Spirit of God. There's lots of things we see, lots of things we know, lots of things we simply don't get. You just can't, you know, the Spirit you can't quantify. The Spirit you can't, uh, you know, I can fill this glass with water to the top, but the Spirit of God is infinite, eternal and unchangeable. And even discussing Him, we're, we're in areas that are just beyond human comprehension. But yet the reality is, folks, it's given to us as a gift. He is given to us as a gift. And it's a gift we should be valuing as the people of God. Do you value the reality of the Spirit of God being given to you? How much do you make of this reality? Do you seek to live in the light of a God who is not only present in heaven for us as Jesus is seated in the right hand of the majesty on high, but that the Spirit of God or the God of heaven dwells in you by the Spirit? That should make every single day an overwhelming proposition to rise from our bed in the morning and say, I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. The Spirit of God dwells in me. I can know God. I can love God. I can live for God. I can be used of God. 
in all of my weakness, in all of my ignorance, in all of my unfaithfulness, in all of my lack of confidence, in all of my humanness, in all that makes me me, there's more to the picture of who and what I am. I'm a temple of the Holy Spirit of God. And there's another thing we should ask ourselves. First, learn to value what you got. Don't sell God short that He's sold you short in terms of blessings. No. You have everything you need to live as a Christian. Start to live as if that were so. Value that reality. But then we need to see more, folks, because we need to long to see more of the Spirit's working and the Spirit's power in us and among us. And Scripture warns us of such things as grieving the Holy Spirit, quenching the Holy Spirit. And in the context, you see the way in which that gets done. It gets done in such ways as our self-centeredness, our anger, our hard and hasty words, our greediness, all the stuff of the self-centered life that characterizes us as the people of God. Scripture tells us the Spirit of God is grieved by that behavior. When we're not loving one another, when we're not humbling ourselves before one another, when we're not seeking to serve one another, it's our lovelessness, it's our prayerlessness, it's our disobedience that grieves the Spirit and quenches His work among us. What's the answer to that? Well, stop being prayerless, stop being loveless, stop being disobedient. Start praying more than you do. Start loving. Get out of yourself and to the needs of others. Stop disobeying. Hear and heed the word of God. Let's abound in prayer for the Spirit. Let's abound in faith that the Spirit of God would work in our lives through this, uh, uh, um, through His Word. Let's love as the chief mark of the Spirit's grace at work in our lives. You know what Jesus says about this? He says, He that has will be given more. He that has not, even that which he has will be taken away from him. Let's be a people that abound. And a hearty dependence and a full recognition of our need of the Spirit to pray for His working, to walk in His power, to live our lives with a greater recognition of the third person of the Trinity. That it would not be true of us that He's the part, He's the member of the Trinity that we ignore, that He's the member of the Trinity that we rejoice in and we love. Because He brings Jesus near to us and He brings the Father near to us. We have union and communion with the triune God through our fellowship in the Holy Spirit. May God be pleased to bless His Word encourage us as His people. Let's go to Him in prayer. Father, we're thankful for what Jesus, our Lord, teaches us about the working of the Spirit of God. And we pray that we would not ignore this 
third person. And we do need the workings of the truly the magnificent ones that come from the glory that you possess in yourself. And there is that proceeding of love. There is that procession of commitment to a lost and needy world, to redeem it through the coming of the Son and the giving of the Spirit. And we're thankful, Father, that you bring us into fellowship with yourself. You bring us into participation in something of the life of God through the work of Christ and through the Spirit that you have given to us. Help us to live as a people conscious of the riches of the gospel that we possess, the riches of the blessings that are ours in in grace, and to live confidently before you as a people clothed in the Spirit and able to perform the works you command us to do, able to love, because we are not without resource. You've given us the greatest of all resource, your own triune being to come near to us through Christ and the Spirit. We pray you'd hear our prayers, receive our praise and our thanksgiving as we come to you with thankful hearts. In that name above all other names, the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen.